Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, and they always do such a great job. I've assembled quite a power panel today. We've got uh, Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Ferdorn, and Dr. Peter Kapsner, and 007 Justin Jepson. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be here, Bill. Hi, Bill. You guys know the rules, don't you? We... Say smart things. <laughs> oh, those rules. <laughs> and always try to make me look good. That's the goal. We understand. All right. So if you have questions, uh, let us know what they are. You can send them over via text to 877-933-2484. And I have to say, we've got uh, a continuation of... We had, we had breakfast this morning, Jeff and Peter and I, and we had um, a really engaging conversation. It was really interesting. And, and Tom and Justin, I'm sorry you guys weren't invited, but... Um, we know where we stand. We you guys now know where you stand. <laughs> Bill paid, too, so... I did. Yeah, yeah he did. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for bringing that up, Jeff. Thank you. Make look like a big hitter on my show. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I got a glimpse of the card number, so there'll be some unusual... <laughs> <laughs> and I put the entire bill on Mr. Underwood's account. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Chevy Chase. So one of the things we talked about is uh, imputed righteousness and uh, the whole idea that uh, when you uh, come to faith, do, do we get handed a, a legal certificate that we're um, now part of God's family or does God do one better? He literally makes us new, makes us new in Christ. And if we are new in Christ, how is it that we're still attracted to the old self? I don't not sure I've come to an understanding of that. Well, why don't we start with, with, with a couple of verses that we were looking at this morning. First, if we're going to be talking about being made new, let's go directly to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, which says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So we already have this concept that when you believe in Christ, you are made new. The old person the old sinful man that you were in Adam was crucified. That's what Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified in Christ. And you've been raised to newness of life in Christ Jesus. So verse 21 of the same chapter says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God has actually made the believer in Christ Jesus, righteous. Mm. He first cleanses you, forgives you of all sin, cleans you all out, and then his righteousness comes in. That's what being born again is all about. We've been made new. And in fact, it has to be this way because if you look at the end of the book, God says of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that we will enter into. He says nothing impure or unrighteous will ever enter into it. So that's the great exchange. Hudson Taylor called this the exchange life. We've exchanged the old for the new. Mm. Yeah, I love that, Jeff. And we we talked a lot about it. And Bill, to the second part of your question about why do we still desire the old self, I think maybe one of the not as much talked about dimensions of salvation 
is there is the dimension that Jeff talked about where we go from old to new. There, there really is a change of status. There's a change of disposition. There's just that there is a, a new creation that the Bible talks about. Um, but then once that happens and we're given a different status, that doesn't mean that everything then moving forward has been fixed forever. You, you enter into that new status, uh, and that new status, what it does is it gives you the ability, uh, because you're now in partnership with Jesus by the Spirit, to do combat, to do combat, or to wage war against sin, to to grow up in your salvation, as the Bible talks about, or to work out your salvation, as it also talks about. So, I, I think we just don't talk a lot about the power of sin and and the power of the Spirit, the resurrection power, like what that power is like, that's operating now within the new creation, and so. I mean, I think about when Justin became 007, his status changed from just Justin, boring Justin, to, to 007, right? Like I'm suddenly he was 007 Justin, yeah. but he wasn't he wasn't good at the whole spy game right away. It took him a while to get used to it. So he was granted 007 status, and that was real, but it took him quite a while, and he's still obviously learning uh, quite a bit about the spy game. And, and I mean, it's a silly example, except that I think we don't really understand what a discipleship can look like where we increasingly engage with uh, Jesus by a spirit that we're both transformed on the inside, but we also begin to exercise a different power on the outside. And you have to grow up into that stuff. That's mm-hmm. that's the fight against the old desire. It's just now you have a new wind at your back to fight that desire. I think the biggest battle all Christians face every day is whose will is going to prevail in my life. And even though I am in Christ and I'm given now new options, a new view, a new understanding— I still have to step toward Jesus rather than letting it just happen. Because oftentimes it doesn't happen within me. I have to repent still. You know, if, if none of us ever had to repent again, then the cleansing would be have total effect. It does have total effect for eternity. What it has right here and now is a cleansing effect to make us more and more like Jesus and to bring us to him. And one of the things I've discovered is that there are some sins in my life that have been eliminated. And... They've been cleansed by drawing closer to Jesus. There are others that are, that are you know, what do we call them, besetting sins. They still fight deep inside. Why aren't those gone? Because that's an area of my life i got to give Jesus full permission to be in and to walk with him in that. And it's usually the way I discovered Jesus' will is through the experiences of my life, the temptations that come my way, and the mistakes I make. And my goal is that I repent quicker than I used to. Yeah. Yeah, I think this this is such a great conversation, and 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 again, I'm I'm, I'm really I'm just slightly peeved I wasn't invited to breakfast. This I morning, get that. That's okay. I'll get <laughs> Especially because I buy. I know. I do. Well, that remember. remember, Justin. Just let me know. Yeah. Okay, that sounds perfect. No. Um. Yeah. Several. I mean, several thoughts here. I mean, I, I know we've used this analogy before. I know Peter. You know, this whole idea of the 007 title being conferred upon me for by whatever reason. But when I I also think of the reality, we've talked about this before, just the, 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 the covenant relationship that we have with God under the new covenant and how that, you know, he likens that to um, the, the, the marriage covenant. And, you know, when I, <clears throat> when I became married, um, you know, the two become one flesh, uh, I had to learn what it was like to be a husband. I had a new title. I had a, a new bride, a whole new life. And, and honestly, I don't think we fully realize um, like, you know, when you get married, all of what you're getting yourself into it, in terms of how wonderful and glorious God has created that relationship. And I think that's just this is, is similar to the fact that when we are born again, I don't think we fully realize all of what we have in Christ. And I think of, you know, like 
Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, in the first chapter, he spends the first 14 verses talking about, you know, how God chose us before the foundation of the world. He lavishes his grace upon us. He's sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. And then he prays for the Ephesians that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that their eyes would be opened, essentially, that they would know how good they have it. Um, and then the whole second half is, you know, all about actually how to walk that out. And he talks, he uses this language, he does it in Ephesians, he does it in elsewhere, about this idea of putting off the old self, being renewed in your mind and putting on the new self. And so even though, even though like when I sin or hurt my wife through my decisions, it doesn't make us that we're not married anymore, but it hurts our relationship. We're not enjoying the fruit and the reward of that relationship. And I think Satan does the same thing. When we sin, it's not that he steals the way to salvation, because that's something given to us uh, by God and we're sealed, but he can keep us from enjoying the reward and what's possible in a relationship with God. And so it is that battle against the flesh and the, that, that we wage um, in the spirit. And so because um, we're in this now and not yet, you know, uh, dynamic that we've talked about that's true of the kingdom of God, of what Jesus started, but yet what he will make one day make fully complete and new when he returns. Let me throw out a question here. I'm looking at the, the three texts in the New Testament use the term renewed. Second uh, Corinthians 4, Ephesians 4, and Colossians 3. Renewed in knowledge, renewed in the spirit of your minds, renewed day by day. Your old self is wasting away. I'm looking at that word renewed, and as I understand it, it is present and ongoing. It's not a one-time event. Because otherwise, it would be renew. It is renewed. Mm-hmm. It is ongoing. So in the ongoing process, my question is not, why do I do these things? Or why don't I always live up to that? My question is, how is Jesus renewing me? And what have mm-hmm. I got to do to open myself up to that day by day and not resist that renewing process? I think if we could mm-hmm. answer that, we'd have a better understanding. Because all of us, look, the, the devil works overtime at convincing every Christian, you know, you've gone too far this time. You've just really blown it. And we we carry this heavy burden. What we need to do is say, all right, we do have these mistakes. What is Jesus doing, though? How is he counteracting that? And how is he renewing us every day? Because if he doesn't do the renewing, I can't do it myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, Pete, if I can just throw one. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, I was just going to say, um, this concept of putting off and putting on, you know, God says that you have taken off your old self, and you have, past tense, Colossians 3.10, put on your new self. So then Ephesians says, so put off your old self. So this is the once but continuing and put on your new self created in Christ Jesus. So there's this concept that you have been made new, but now you need to live out your new identity. You know, you talked about why does the world continue to to trip us up in our Christian walk? You know, I love that, that Romans 12 passage. It says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And one of the problems that people have often brought up, the problem with a living sacrifice is that we keep wanting to get up and crawl off the altar, right? Mm-hmm. We say, Lord, I'm surrendering all to you today. Oh, 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 wait a minute. What about this over here? And what about this over there? If you haven't noticed, there's a lot of distractions in this world. Mm-hmm. And they tend to, uh, to, to divert our attention away from the Lord. And so that's why God over and over says, abide in me. Trust in me with all of your hearts. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Um, and, and, and I think if we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our understanding, he will direct our paths. Mm. Nicely, nicely done. All right, we're going to take our first break, but please uh, send your questions over, 877-933-2484. I think when we come back, I want to continue this. This is so good. It's so rich. Um, We're talking about being made new in Christ. If you're a believer, you've been made 
new. Again, this is Guide Talk. The power panel is uh, Pastor Tom Paris, Jeff Ferdorn, Dr. Peter Kapsner, and Justin Jepson. We'll be right back. the song, but I'm thinking I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> Welcome back to Guy Talk. Thanks for uh, joining us today. I'm uh, loving this discussion. We're talking about being made new, and we talk about when you're made new, why are you still attached in any way to your old sinful self? Uh, and one of the things we talked about at breakfast this morning, and I think I want to revisit it, it is, what about when you try to white knuckle your way through sin when you should really be free in Christ? Where you go, I'm power of sin is broken in my life versus always trying to white knuckle yourself through. We have a battle going on. It was there before Jesus renewed us and it's continuing until the second coming. And that's called the freedom of will. He's given us freedom of will. He has permitted us to make choices. And that isn't taken away when we're renewed in Jesus Christ, when we are born again. That doesn't disappear. Now it is, how are we going to use it? And it's kind of like tools that you have. You can either use them for good or for bad. And that's the choice that we have that a non-believer doesn't have. They will always choose to do things in their best interest or the best interest of their families. We are called to do things in the best interest of Jesus. And that's the part I battle. And so, yeah, do I white-knuckle things? I usually white-knuckle when I know I'm being asked to do something I really don't want to do. And and I, I'm, I, I don't know that I want to go in there and talk to these people. I don't know if I want to deal with this situation and yet, when the Lord calls, the best thing you can do is go, because it's in that that the, the knuckles stop being white and they start turning red again. <laughs> you know, I think one of the primary passages, well, actually two passages that really talk about this, one is Galatians 2.20, that says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I live, I now live by faith. Well, what in the world? I've been crucified? What does that even mean and it means that your old self Paul says you've died to sin how can you live in it any longer that old self that was a slave to sin has been crucified and you've now been raised in newness of life so Romans 6 says therefore count yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus offer yourself to him and i think that's the pattern your old self was a sinful unrighteous, unsaved, you know, person. The new self is a new saint made holy and blameless in God's eyes, completely forgiven and made new in holiness and righteousness. You're blameless in God's eyes. That's who you are. That's your new identity in Christ. Now go live it out. But in the end, you said it, free will. That's why Jesus in the garden, when he said, well, I don't want to take this route. 
If there's any other route, I will take that route. But in the end, God, not my will, but mm-hmm. your will be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Bill, yeah. At, the, at, the, at the risk of, I mean, boy, this is a, a tricky question, but I think if you, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is so helpful for understanding what your question is, I think, about how do you move from a white knuckle discipleship to an actual authentic inside out change of a change of desire that that changes then your behavior where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you to will and to act on behalf of his good purpose. And I think there's mm-hmm. a, just a couple comments that might be helpful. Uh, each one of them, I think we could probably take a couple of hours on, but I think to have a, a rightly ordered theology of sin, um, we need to understand that the primary metaphor for sin is leprosy. And, um, what the Jew, like we have to crawl back into the Jewish mind about how they understood sin, because it's very different than how we tend to understand it. We think of sin only as something that I have a disposition or I don't have a disposition. But for the Jews, um, the reason why leprosy was the metaphor is sin was seen always as a power. It's when, when Paul writes about it, it's always as sort of this supernatural, almost personified power. Or in the Cain and Abel story of Genesis 4, God says to Cain, be very careful for sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to master you. And and for the Jews, they didn't have anything called the present tense. There is no like living in the present because time is always unfolding. And so there's always a future towards which we're unfolding. And, and the point of all of that is that when when we reduce sin down to just sort of some disposition versus not, I think we don't understand then what the discipleship journey can be like of an active God that's actually at work in us. And so sin as a leprosy is going to, if you leave it unchecked, what is it going to do? It doesn't just stay there. It's not a disposition. It's a power that continues to disfigure. And it might start in your ankle and work its way up to your knee and then up to your thigh and then through your arms and shoulders and face. And it ultimately destroys you altogether. I think you have to start with the biblical theology of sin with the metaphor of leprosy, that there's a power that is killing the beloved. And then when you Mm -hmm. start with that idea, then salvation becomes a power that intercedes against that power of sin. And that being the resurrection power that, um, that came when Jesus came out of the grave. It's why 1 Corinthians 15 says that if he was not raised, your faith is in vain and you are still dead in your sins. And and for mm. people who make Good Friday the heart of the gospel, meaning that there was some interchange done there, that Jesus took a blow for all of us, they're missing, I think, the whole point of, of the gospel is Easter Sunday. I mean, Paul's very clear that you're still completely dead in your sins if the resurrection hasn't happened. But because it has happened, now there's another power. There, There is a yeah. heavenly therapeutic agent that goes to work against the power of sin in our life. So I think we make a mistake when we think this whole thing is just about a dispositional change, when really it is when you say yes to following Jesus, what you're saying yes to is I surrender my life to you because I have a leprosy that's going to kill me that I can't control. So I fully yield into you. And now Philippians 2, God is at work in you to will and to act according <laughs> to his good purposes. And because you're now yeah. acting with God in the midst of all of it. It just, I think we, we have such a thin view of salvation that it's some interchange versus some new power that's at work in us, which is why Parrish said earlier, it's present and ongoing. That That's why we yeah. have that language. Yeah. Uh, it's so good, Peter. I, you know, I think when it, that whole idea of, of sin being a power at work in you, it reminds me of what Paul talks about in Romans 8, um, 13 in particular, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit 
you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that idea that the, the wage against the power of sin, even when we're Christian, even when we are saved and are being saved or have been made new, are becoming new, who we are, the new person. And that's what he goes on to say. We didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We're not no longer enslaved to sin, but the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, and the reminder of our, of our identity and who who we are and who we, who now we belong to. And um, there, there's an old writer, Puritan writer, John Owen, who wrote uh, a book called The Mortification of the Sin in the Flesh. And it's basically uh, an extrapolation of this whole, uh, from this one verse. And he makes the point that in our battle against sin, it's not enough simply just to try to avoid it. You know, and it's not, um, sometimes, sometimes we can preach a false gospel of sin management, and it's all about sin mortification. It's, it's, it's being put to death. And no longer before salvation, before we were made new, um, we were enslaved to sin. We didn't have a choice not to sin. But now when we are being made new, we actually become the temple of the Holy Spirit who resides and lives and dwells in us. And we have a new power to say not only no to sin, but to say yes to Christ. And so it's not about just avoiding what we're avoiding, uh, but it's about what also what we're now pursuing and what we can find our ultimate satisfaction in. And it's, you know, it's that idea of, you know, once we've tasted of that kingdom life, that abundant life that Jesus makes possible for us as our good shepherd, um, we we lose our appetite. We lose the taste for the things of the world because um, we continually are being made new. And as we taste the, the fruits of the kingdom that in an ever increasing way, as we approach eternity. I think one of the dangers that we face, and I've been a Protestant pastor for 50 years, here's the problem. We are so we so emphasize the grace of Jesus, which I think is good, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we forget that once we have experienced that grace, once we have come to know Jesus, now there is a whole life to be lived out of thankfulness, and that thankful life means that we change, we intentionally change behavior. We intentionally do things to become more like Jesus. And I'm forever telling Christians today, one of your goals, you know, we talk about, we use this terminology in Christianity to know Jesus. I agree. What does that mean? Well, it really means in the end, not only do you surrender to him, but from this moment on, I want to think like Jesus. I want to behave like Jesus. I want to talk like Jesus. I want to serve like Jesus. I want him in control of my life. And the only way I get there. You know, and I read the word and I pray, but the way I get there is when I'm in tough situations where I have to make a choice. Am I going to behave like Jesus or am I going to behave like Tom? And that's the battle that goes on once we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Nicely done, gentlemen. Take a little break. We've got time for lots of questions. As a matter of fact, we're going to do the extended version of Guy Talk today, which means we're going to go all the way till 30 minutes after 5 o'clock or 6.30 if you're out east. We'll be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. 
for dinner. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Thank you for joining me today. We've got a lovely roundtable here with Guy Talk. Uh, even a question came in that uh, talked about. Uh, I've got a question for the distinguished panel. I wasn't sure who that was, but. Um, <laughs> must, they must, it's the they must have met you guys. <laughs> I think they left. I don't know yeah. where they're at. Yeah, but I think the subject. Is, well, now we're on this road. I, let's just stay on it. And Jeff, you brought this up during the break about. And Peter, you talked about this at breakfast this morning when you ask how many people have committed their life to Christ more than once in over how many years. Peter, hands go up all the time. Everyone yeah, seems I, to put their hand up. Yeah, that I, I've done that more than once. And then the point Jeff was saying was, if you keep on sinning after being saved, uh, that's when you start to doubt your salvation. Hmm. Peter? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I just didn't... Um, the, the, those, it's been about 10, 15 years that I've asked that question of the room, and it seems like what ends up happening in people's lives is that they do make an authentic decision for Jesus, but then over time, um, they continue to sin and continue to sin, and they don't really know why. And then it's, it seems like what they understandably decide to do is turn around and give their life to Jesus again, because for a variety of reasons, right? And I just... I think there's a different invitation in that. I would, I'd hesitate to get too deeply into it without letting everybody else chime in too, because I think there's a lot of different angles to that conversation. But all I can say is that when you, when you observe something that persistent over that many years among that many people in terms of the fear of losing their salvation or, or giving their life over and over again, I've actually asked the same question in a lot of churches over the years, and it, it's not just 18 to 22-year-olds, it's 40-year-olds and 60-year-olds, mm-hmm. it's, it's across the board. So I think when you see that dynamic, and this is where I'd love everybody else to, to chime in, it begs the question, we're probably missing something. And, and the question is, is, what are we missing? You know, I see salvation as a once-and-done event. You, are, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved, you are made a new creation. That's what must I do to be saved. Now the next question is, how then shall I live, right? So how do we live in this newness of life? And I know people that have gone up to altar calls again and again and again just to make sure they're saved uh, because they look at their lives, and even though, like we were talking about earlier, we've been made righteous, I'm, I'm not acting righteous. I'm not acting it out. So maybe I'm not actually saved. And this is where we you just mentioned assurance. This concept of assurance of salvation, that once you are born again, your salvation, God says, is shield, kept in heaven, shielded by God's power, and nothing can all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But that's a truth. That's a promise in God's Word. And if you don't know God's Word, you're not going to appropriate that promise. And so God says to grow up, to mature. Doubt is a common condition of man. But I find the more I study God's Word and His promises, my doubt fades away, and my faith becomes more and more assured. But if that's you today, I, I often in my classes say, you know, now that you're saved and you're in Christ, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore, and there's nothing that you can do that will make him love you any less. You are saved for all of eternity, gave you the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you forever. One of the reasons I'm on Guy Talk is exactly what we're talking about, and here's why. We have privatized Christianity in this country. It's me and Jesus. Very rarely do we understand the nature of the church except going on Sunday and supporting the annual budget. The reality is there are 52 one another passages in the New Testament, which I have never heard a sermon series on. You know, we don't talk about those. 
How do we work this out? The only way I know to work it out is when I have a brother like you, Jeff, or a brother like Bill, who who says to me, that's kind of stupid thinking. (laughs) That's not what Jesus talked about. Why are you saying that? And it is when I am forced to go back to the Word and go back to Jesus and not simply dwell in my own mind constantly because I can cook up things and I can really look bad and it can get worse and worse and worse. But when I have brothers and sisters in Christ who hold me accountable and say, look, we're going to be here whether you like it or not. We're going to love you and we're going to keep working on this. There's where there's the power. We have lost that element in Christianity. Christianity for most people is an event that you do on Sunday or Wednesday night. It is not a lifestyle and a community. If we really had that community and really were free to hold one another accountable and really honest, I think we, we'd be talking about this in a whole different way. That's the Acts Church, by the way. It is. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is such an important conversation. And, you know, I, I think without trying to open up to other many cans of worms here, I, I, some of the things that I've been just observing myself and have been wondering and thinking and, and studying and um, about regarding this. I mean, I've had the privilege of teaching a class called spiritual formation at university of Northwestern, which, um, you know, usually is, you know, freshmen or uh, sophomore students. And part of that class is we have them share their, their faith story, their, their journey and um, how they came to know what was their life like before Jesus meeting Jesus after Jesus, just what was that like? We give them some frameworks and almost 90% of them, I would say, you know, start off, well, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I made a decision for Jesus when I was really young, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And then I kind of had to, you know, this difficulty happened in my life. And then I recommitted my life to Christ. And then then I've started, you know, journeying with him again. And that's maybe I think that's when I was really saved, you know. And I think it's I think we've created a culture in at least in evangelicalism within this country where it's possible, we think it's possible to be a Christian and not be a disciple. And, and I think if we view salvation merely as a transaction, um, and there's no wonder. And in other words, we don't truly paint a vision of what it's like to be made new and what it's like to actually follow and obey Christ. And again, that, but Tom's point cannot be done individually. It has to be, we're not just saved as an individual, we are saved as an individual, we're saved into a family, uh, into a kingdom. And so I think we've, we've, we've preached a, a, essentially a truncated, non-biblical version of the gospel that says that you can be saved, be secure, eternal salvation is secured, but essentially you can kind of live however you want and kind of figure out how to follow Jesus later on in life when you're, when you're an adult and things are more serious. So I know there's a lot more there, but I think that's that's at least part of I think part of the issue here in terms of what Peter's talking about that we're missing something. I mean, I, I, so I think we've separated salvation and discipleship, and um, and and that Jesus never did that, and New Testament never does that. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to go kind of go back to the text and have our minds renewed. <laughs> yeah, and no, I think uh, and Justin, in light of what you said too. Um, I think how we fill in the blank, if you said, what have we been saved from? Like how you fill in that blank with the answer, I think tells you a lot about what you perceive about the faith and I think leads to some of these understandable questions. But if you fill in, if you answer the question, what have you been saved from? And if your answer is, I was saved from the wrath of God that was going to send me into hell, then that first step or the first reason for saying yes um, is is really to sort of make sure that that doesn't happen. And, and I want to be really clear with what I'm about to say, which is, of course, there is judgment. 
Um, there, there is God's wrath will come. It is biblical. It is there. It just isn't his pervasive characteristic or posture towards the world. If you do a study on biblical anger and wrath, it's almost always being motivated by sadness and grief, and it's a passing quality within God. It's not part of his actual character. So um, if, if you fill in the blank, what have we been saved from? And the answer is God's wrath. I think maybe we're missing something, which gets to your point, Justin, uh, of saying that, um, you know, we think we get saved to go to heaven and then discipleship is kind of optional. But if you fill in that blank and say that what we are saved from is the power of sin that was going to kill us and that uh, we we basically inflicted upon ourselves and by grace, God came in the midst of a power that we inflicted upon ourselves and saved us from that power it changes the entire conversation about why you say yes to following Jesus. And, and so in turning or repenting or coming back towards, then your whole journey uh, becomes one in which you're going to stay close to the only power that is available in this world that continues to save us from that power uh, of sin that's in our lives and, and the leprosy. So that's why at the, before the break, I kept saying that you, to start with the biblical theology of sin, the metaphor of leprosy really helps us uh, to to understand what we've been saved from. The last comment about that, the early church, when they went into those waters of baptism, the night before they spent their entire night facing the West and facing the darkness and saying that we renounce the power of Satan at work in our life. We, re we renounce the works of evil in our life. And when the sun would come up on Easter morning, they would turn towards the East into the, into the rising of the sun, and they would head down into the waters of baptism um, to be able to say, we want a new power at work in us. And they would come out of those waters of baptism. They'd be anointed by the Spirit as representative of that new power. And then they stayed as close to that communion table as they possibly could week in and week out. So it's a lot. I think what we're missing, you guys, is that we are in a 17th century version of faith that is all about getting saved from the wrath of God that people like Jonathan Edwards brought into the equation that simply wasn't part of church thinking for the first 15, 1600 years. Uh, it, it had been, we had been saved from the power of sin and by grace, we were saved from that power. So I know it's probably going to be pretty controversial, and, and I'm not going to suggest that everybody has to think that, but I would invite people to really get into the text and understand what we've been saved from, because how you answer that question really will define your discipleship journey moving forward. Mm. Who wants to follow that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, you I just see, go to heresy.com and you no, can no. <laughs> I see you say leprosy. I think I mean I th I think the picture is valid, but in in you know kind of biblically speaking, I would define that leprosy as a disease and the, I think the Bible does call that disease sin and death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So, you know, those that aren't saved stand condemned before God. Uh, so there is a component here that those that judgment is appointed for men to die once and then face judgment. If you die without Christ, you will experience the judgment of God. Uh, it's going to happen. There's a great white throne judgment that's going to come. There's judgment day that's going to come. And there's two paths. There's two roads. There's two ways. There's two gates. Uh, there's a way that leads to eternal life, and there's a way that leads to condemnation. And the Bible is full of this kind of um, uh, decision point where you have to decide to either follow Christ, be saved, have life, and have it eternally, or to be condemned and to be uh, to to be judged. Um, you know, when you reject God, all that's left is a fearful expectation of judgment. So that component is there, but I I, I do get your your point, and that is that it, the the power that God saved us from this sin that you described 
is at work in us right now as well. So, yeah, and I and I don't want to be mistaken at all. I really believe there's a judgment. I entirely do on every level. So I, I share that thought. But uh, even the, like the Romans six twenty three passage, it's my understanding from the original language. If you read it from there, it says that the results of the power of sin. Uh, the word death there is thanatos. And, and death is not a synonym for hell. So when we use that passage to say that the results of your sin is a judgment in hell, it actually is a misery of the soul that comes up from the power of sin that leads us to darkness and turmoil and pain and sorrow that begins in this life and continues forever. But the free gift available of eternal life, we, we talked about that a few weeks ago on the show, that eternal is sort of the idea of indestructible. And life is the Greek word zoe, which means the kind of life that God himself enjoys. And so salvation it seems to me, is that we've been rescued from the power of sin, the thanatos that creates misery uh, of our soul and everything around us, just like leprosy would. But the free gift available just by grace, you can't do anything to earn it, is the very life of God begins to indwell you and change you again from the inside out. Now, I know we don't teach it that way, typically speaking, and that's why it's a little dangerous to bring it up um, you know, in, in a guy talk kind of segment, as important as the subject is, because of the risk of misunderstanding. I, I absolutely believe there's a judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think that biblically what the idea of salvation is, is that we are saved from God's wrath, even though God's wrath is real. The heavens didn't open to save us from God's wrath. The heavens opened to save us from the leprosy that was dwelling among the beloved in my best shot at it, willing to be wrong. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had the privilege of going to a leper colony when I was in Bangladesh many years ago, and uh, we spent the day there. And I learned from the doctors there, and I learned from the people that leprosy as a disease doesn't destroy you from within. What it does is it makes all your extremities go numb. And so the people put their hands in fire, and they don't realize they're being burned. They hit their nose hard, and they don't realize they've broken their nose. And that's why you see lepers with, with fingers that have fallen off and toes that have fallen off and a nose that's fallen off. That's what sin really is. It numbs us to the reality of what Jesus wants. It numbs us to the truth. And when Jesus came and gave us new life, as we talked about earlier, what he did is he woke up those nerves in us that says... The life you want to live is the life I'm living, not the life you're currently living. And the battle for the Christian, and this is where I feel bad for people that, and, and I've seen it because even as a Lutheran, I do altar calls occasionally. I've seen people come almost every time. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. You've been given the new life. Now put it to work. Put it to work and live it out in terms of caring for others and standing for Jesus and living that. But when you just internalize it and try to stay out of hell, which I'm all for staying out of hell, it doesn't seem to be enough for people to live in this world. Yeah. But to your point there, Tom, I think the, you know, we think of an altar call, you know, we, we've created a whole new category called, you know, do you want to commit your life to Christ for the first time or do you want to recommit your life to Christ? Because maybe you've fallen wayward. Yep. And I think sometimes the way that that often gets explained um, is, is essentially, you know, you don't know for sure if you're saved. So now if you recommit your life to Christ, well, now now you can know and at least walk away from tonight. And at least until breakfast tomorrow morning, you can maybe have a sense of assurance. But we don't talk about it like that. We, we you know, for those that you say, you know, you've made a decision. And yeah, there's a sense in which do we need to recommit our lives to Christ every day? <laughs> but not unto salvation. But because I've been saved, I have a Savior to follow and to become like, and, and I join Jesus on his work and his mission. And so to Peter's point, you know, the, the Scriptures don't just talk about us being saved from something, but to be saved unto something or saved for something. And and so uh, I, think that's, I think that's part of the reason why sometimes it, 
confused is even the way that sometimes altar calls, I'm not saying you do this, but I'm saying it's my own experience growing up. I mean, I've heard that so many times and I was like, well, we've created, and we don't necessarily see that category postulated that way in the new Testament. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and again, it's not the, you know, there's a the old kind of a, not still, still there, but an old debate of the Lordship salvation. Can Jesus be your savior and not your Lord? And, to, to open up that, not to open up that whole can of worms, but that that idea that it's not that you're saved and then you have to, you know, be to be a disciple to then make sure that you're saved. They're one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. And so I think we just so often try to separate what the Bible always holds together. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with lots more guy talk in just a minute. back with Guide Talk. Thank you uh, for joining us today, uh, Pastor Tom Paris, Jeff Ferdorn, uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Justin Jepson, 007. That's the team today, and, and we are, uh, we're not, we haven't taken a lot of questions yet, but we're going to do an extended version of Guide Talk today, which means after the top of the hour, we're going to go another 30 minutes. So uh, just so you know, we'll still have time for your questions, 877-933-2484, and you can send it on over. We'd love to hear what you've got for us. Um, all right, uh, let's see. I've got a couple of questions here I want to get to. Uh, so let's go to, um, can you break down the parable of the dishonest manager from Luke 16, 8 to 9? I keep trying to decipher it, but I'm having a hard time. Luke 16, verses 8 to 9, the parable of the dishonest manager. Trying to make sense of it, but I'm having a hard time. So let's read it, and we, as everybody's thinking and looking at it, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager. He had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcome into an eternal dwelling. Um, I did this class on the parables, and this one... I struggled with quite a bit uh, because it seems to be that the parable is commending uh, this shrewd behavior. And if you go up above, it's basically this manager who is going to be fired. And so he goes to all the other debtors of his master and he works out a backroom deal where he basically is, is dealing to himself. He reduces the debt to the master for his own self-benefit. And the master seems to be complimenting him on this in his shrewdness. And in some way, we think that the master is the Lord and he's complimenting this. And I I don't, I actually think that's not the answer because self-dealing or lying or being shrewd um, for your own self-interest is not commendable before the Lord. Um, So I, I actually don't think that the common, kind of the common interpretation is he's being, you know, kind of patted on the back, like, you, you acted shrewdly, and, and, and I, I actually don't 
think that's it. But One of the problem with parables is that we don't get to see Jesus' face. <laughs> we don't get to see the expressions. We don't get to see the hand gestures. And you think about it, we honor people in our culture who are shrewd, who can take a business and really make it go and really make it big and really do all those things, make a lot of money. And that's what the world values. The opposite of being shrewd biblically is wisdom. That instead of being a shrewd individual, now the sons of God and daughters are to use wisdom in how they handle wealth, how they handle life, how they handle people, so that their wisdom spreads out to those people and changes their lives, and they're welcome to an eternal home. And I think one of the problems with parables is that too often we read it trying to understand what the story is saying all by itself, when you have to look at a parable in light of all that Jesus said as well. Can I just finish here real quick before you guys other just jump in? Verse 10 then says, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. I think that's kind of the, the point of this parable. And I think the shrewd manager, as opposed to being commended, I think Jesus was pointing out he was not honest. He was not trusted with little. And I think that's the point of that parable. So anyway. Anybody else want in? <laughs> yeah, I have, I have less than nothing on that. Okay. Like less than nothing. <laughs> well, it was handled. It was handled well. It was. It was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, we're going to do a, a little bit more after the top of the hour. We're going to go till uh, 30 minutes after the hour. So thank you uh, for being willing to stay longer. I appreciate that with all of you. Uh, so I've got time for probably another uh, question here before we go to uh, top of the hour. Um, this is one that popped up. Um, how can we share the gospel and the difficult truths of those who reject Christ? How do we effectively share about the judgment of God for sinners and the reality of hell in a loving way? Tom Paris, you're looking like yeah. you're leaning in. Well, I, I always love this because I've part of my work is I've really been kind of a pastor evangelist all my life. And we were talking earlier, I've been able to, like a lot of us, it's easy to talk to atheists and agnostics. It's, it's harder with people that are somewhat religious and think they know the answer. That's where it's difficult. But what I learned a long time ago is this. I, I've i gone through the study of the four spiritual laws, uh, Kennedy's evangelism program. I mean, I've got the Roman road down, Pat. The problem is that's not where people start. Where I start with people is where I ask them to tell me, how satisfied are you with your life? Are you really happy with what you're doing? How do you feel good about this? Do you feel that after you die, you will have achieved what you really wanted to achieve? And people will talk to me about that. And when they start talking to me about that, they always have regrets and they always have sorrow. And with millennials, I don't talk about sin off the bat. I start with game, you know, shame and guilt. They all understand that. But then I take them to where they can understand that there is hope. And if you could find a way, I was sitting at a table with one guy one day at Perkins. And I, I said to him, without ever mentioning the name of Jesus, I said, if you could find real hope and you know that you would have a great eternity because what you did here was right, would you take it? He said, well, I got to think about it. And I said, okay, I'll go pay the bill. I'm halfway down the aisle. He comes running up to me and he goes, I've got time now. I want to know. And that opened the door and that gentleman became a Christian. Mm. Anybody yeah, else? I, I, well, yeah, just just one maybe another piece of this too, to, to Tom's point, you know, talked about some of the other methods of sharing the, the gospel and and I think that they all have 
obviously something good that sure. to, uh, they all have merit, right? You know, but one of the things that I've talked about too with, with students when I was referencing spiritual formation, we talk about, you know, how does one become born again and talk about the Romans road and some of the history of that. And the Roman road, Romans road begins with Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And um, and I think part of the, the issue with that is one must begin with who God is, and and the 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 beginning, you know, the beginning of the Bible isn't, you know, in the beginning you're a horrible, wicked sinner and you need a savior. It's in the beginning, God. I think we need to help paint a picture of who God is. And so when I when I share and and talk about this, I, I like to talk about everyone's got a concept of who God is. People have an opinion about that. Um, and or some higher power or reality. And then it opens up this idea of the reality that this of Ecclesiastes, eternity is written in our heart. We yes. have this longing for something more, and then that can lead to then the one who is our creator and then lead to the problem of the fallen world that we live in and the part that we play in that with our own sin and separateness from God and then the pathway that Jesus makes possible for us to be reconciled and made new. So good, gentlemen. Uh, fortunately, we're going to continue Guy Talk. We're going to do another 30 minutes, so send your questions over, 877-933-2484. Already a special thanks to my panel, uh, Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, Dr. Peter Kapster, and Justin Jepson. We'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.